we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We are up to episode 101. It's the 20th of June, 2017. Scott, you've you've got your century and now you're working on your double century. Well done. I am working on the double century, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, we're back. It's, 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 we're back and we're not going anywhere. So, yeah, for the lovers of religion out there, we are here to be a thorn in your side. We are. <laughs> Once again, Scott, an enormous amount has happened in the space of one week to talk about. It's incredible the way it just keeps happening. Um, it really doesn't ever stop, does it? No. So, uh, first piece is from the Saturday paper, and when I saw this, um, you know, this was podcast gold as far as I was concerned, because in one article it mentions Gillian Triggs, um, the Human Rights Commission, it has a religious nutter, and Margaret Court. All, yeah. All bundled up in the what one article. What more can you want? For all this? <laughs> <laughs> what, what more could an Iron Fist uh, podcaster, you know, want from an article? So... So, Scott, Gillian Triggs, she's... Well, did she resign? She's coming up, no, her, her, her term's coming to an end at the end of this month, I thought they said, wasn't it? Right. So Yeah, I think it's at the end of this month that she's finishing up. It's just through expiry of her tenure. Yeah, and exactly. she's got to be yeah. replaced. Yeah. So, names are being put forth, dear listener, um, for a replacement, and... The government's keen to have somebody who will toe the party line a little bit more than Gillian Triggs did, and... Mm. Um, uh, right-wing Tony will be very keen to see a replacement, and he's not alone. <laughs> There's a number of people. Anyway, you know, it turns out that of the people who are qualified for this position, there's a, there's a lot of them who just don't want the job because exactly they, yeah. because they know it's a poisoned chalice. Chalice, and, yes. And you've got to seriously think about your career prospects if you take this job on. Um, so Brandis, he's having a hard time finding somebody to take over from Gillian Triggs. But a name has come up, according to The Australian. And um, here we go. Outspoken tennis great Margaret Court and her husband Barry. Not only is Margaret battling fights to do with gay marriage, but she's simultaneously lobbying political figures, including John Howard, to back a legal academic called Augusta Zimmerman in his bid to replace Gillian Triggs as president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. And that would be all well and dandy, Scott. But with Margaret Court's <laughs> fingers all over this, it exactly. can't be straightforward, can it? No. And shall I read the headline? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Hardline Christian hoping to replace Triggs. <laughs> mm. Now, yes. it's no surprise that he comes from Western Australia. Mm. It's a... Uh, it's ridiculous that he would come from anywhere else in the country because we've, we have been on this podcast before. We've talked about how the uh, religious right is trying to overtake the uh, Western Australian branch of the Liberal Party. Anyway, I'll read this from the article. According to some, we need a Christian running the Human Rights Commission, not just any Christian, a Protestant Christian, and not just any Protestant Christian. We need one who firmly believes that man was created in God's image and that biblical teachings are fundamental democracy and the rule of law. 
one who does not subscribe to postmodernist relative, relativist theories, and who recognises multiculturalism begets tyranny. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And when you read that, you can understand why, uh, why Margaret Court was in favour of this bloke. Mm. In a situation where not a lot of people want the job, this guy's chances are apparently a lot higher than one would hope. So keep an eye on, um, on Augusto Zimmerman. I mean, with a name like that, what a great name, Augusto Zimmerman. I, I mean, mm. I'm prepared to forgive him just on the basis of a great name. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, he's, he is, um, he's a member of uh, Margaret Court's Fundamentalist Pentecostal Church and um, when the uh, newspaper interviewed him, they were asking him various questions. Uh, they said, uh, did he believe faiths other than Christianity were capable, compatible with democracy, good governance and the rule of law? His answer was long and frankly baffling. Um, and asked whether he believed in evolution, he said, I have no idea where I stand in regard to this matter. Um, but he has in print previously made it very clear that uh, uh, he's a creationist, not an evolutionist. That's a worry. Mm. And um, uh, he has claimed in the past that most rights-based and democratic nations are the majority Protestant ones. So um, the fundamentalist religious right has significant clout in Western Australia. It has produced a number of members of both the state and federal parliaments um, and only last year, a serving state mem member, Rob Johnson, claimed he'd been stacked out of his seat by people he described as members of a religious cult backed by federal MP Ian, Ian Goodenough. Is that truly his name, Ian Goodenough? I couldn't tell you. I, I mm. couldn't tell you. I'd never heard of the bloke until I read, it, read that in the article. It looks like there's a federal MP whose name is Mr... Is, is, is Ian good enough? <laughs> oh, we'll have to double-check that. Yeah, you will have to have a look at that, yeah. Mm. So anyway, we've mentioned in the past the Western Australians have got some branch-stacking religious nutters and um, Margaret Court is involved in that and she's going to do her best. So eyes peeled on Augusto Zimmerman. When you hear his name in future, you heard it here first. Do you listen? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy that... Um, well, she's out there going to bat for him, and she's really going hard on it. Like, you know, she wrote to Howard and that sort of stuff and tried to implore him to, to get involved. I think mm. she even said that, you know, you want a Christian involved. So, yeah. Mm. I mean, if Augusto really wanted the job, he'd probably plead with Apply Margaret. Apply for it? Well, he'd probably just tell her to stay quiet. Cause exactly, really yeah. Having Margaret as your referee at this point in time probably no, isn't the best. You, you don't, know. no. Mm. Scott, uh, interesting story in relation to contempt charges. Um, yeah, that this might was be levied against three government ministers. Mm. Yeah, I didn't understand. I've got to forgive my ignorance here. Just mm. bear with me, gentle listeners. Mm. Um, Assistant to the Treasurer Michael Sucker singled out the comments made by the judges in the course of the appeal hearing, decontextualised them, and argued that. It is the attitude of judges like these here that has eroded any trust that remained in our legal system. Um, yeah, it's inflammatory, but is it really contemptuous of court? Well, potentially. So we've got we've got uh, some guys uh, being sentenced for terror offences. Yeah, and it's 
um, been put before a Victorian judge and it's now on appeal, the sentencing, to the full court of the Victorian Supreme Court. And these comments were made by these politicians prior to the full court making its decision. So the matter is still sub judice, like it's still before the courts that are mm. considering a matter and politicians are commenting, saying things like uh, warning the courts that uh, they should not be places for ideological experiments in the face of global and local threats from Islamic extremism and, uh, and hinting that... Um, the judge's approach has eroded any trust that remained in our legal system. So it is, on one hand, I think, trying... It could be perceived as trying to influence judges on their decision. I mean, if you feel... This, look, the way to do it, Scott, is if you feel about this matter strongly, just wait till they've made their decision and then... And then make all the comments you want about whether you thought they did a good or a bad job, perhaps. Okay, so you uh, can comment on the court once the court has made their decision? Yes. You, you couldn't okay. accuse them of, of being cheats or dishonest, but you could accuse them of being wrong or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, so you wouldn't be able to say anything about their character, but you could talk about their competence, I guess, in that sense, yeah. to say that you disagreed with the decision. But if you're going to do it before they've made their decision, there is this sense that you are trying to influence the judges through your public comments. So that's, um, well, contempt of court's got um, uh, two types. One is a sort of a sub contempt where it's prior to finalising of a matter, you are potentially influencing the decision and that's, you know, arguable that that's happening here, although it happens more in a case where there is jurors involved who are even more prone to being influenced by public comments. And you would have thought three learned judges sitting on an appeal are not going to be too worried about what a couple of politicians say. So that's that's the argument that says, hey, this isn't such a big deal. Like, So that's your defence, yeah, I guess. It's just, you know, the attitude of these judges, of judges like these, which has eroded any trust that remain in our legal system, I, I just don't see that's contemptuous. Mm. Anyway. So that's, yeah, and that's, you could well be right there, like storming a teacup sort of thing. Who are these three nobody ministers of the Crown making these allegations? What, ultimately, judges are appointed for life, so they can do what they like. Yeah, in that's that true. Sense. So... Y- Yes, uh, perhaps there's really, in effect, not that much pressure on them. Um, The other type of uh, contempt of court is sort of scandalising the court or undermining the public confidence in the court. And that would have been the sort of thing where that um, Islamic woman refused to stand when she was in court that time. Mm. That was sort of not Mm. showing respect to the position. So... um, uh, accusing um, the court of ideological experiments, maybe, could be uh, said about this. But in any event, Scott, yes, it's a bit flimsy. It's probably not going to come through at the end of the day. But... Yeah, it's it struck me that it was a little bit flimsy. Mm. And 
you know, they'd have to have something more than that if they were actually going to proceed to contempt of court charges, wouldn't they? Yeah, but the thing is, the the people who decide these contempt of court cases, Scott, are the people who feel who are the so-called victims of the contempt, like it's the judges themselves who say, I find you in contempt of me. Like it doesn't go to another judge, I don't think. I think it's the actual judge involves who decides, well, you're in contempt of this court and I'm putting you in the slammer for a couple of nights. So, yeah, so I don't think it goes to a separate set of judges. It's just the ones involved who could say, well, you're in contempt of our court and we find this penalty. (laughs) Interestingly, Scott, the penalty is uh, is, is is unlimited because it's a yeah, it can be a, over a year in jail. Yeah, this this happens just through the inherent powers of of all courts that they have this power to um, find people in contempt. So uh, it's open to them to to go as hard as they like, and that is interesting because. If they were uh, found guilty, then it would be an offence punishable for a year or longer. doesn't mean you are punished for a year or longer, but if it's just an offence punishable by, by a year or longer, in which case um, Section 44 of the Constitution says it precludes anyone who is under sentence or subject to be sentenced for any offence punishable... Um, by imprisonment for a year or longer. So potentially if the three of them were found guilty, they could become then ineligible to um, to keep their seats in Parliament. Yeah, and that would spark by-elections in the House and that sort of thing and potentially bring down the, the Turnbull government. Mm. So mean, it, it depends on what sort of margin they're on in their seats. Um, one would have thought that seeing they were Cabinet Ministers that they'd have reasonably healthy margins, but mm. still in all, it is, uh, it is a concern. Mm. So um, I think they were slow to apologise, but may have since. But anyway, we'll keep mm. an eye on that one. Mm. Scott, in Canada, interesting case. Yeah, a, this was really interesting, wasn't it? Mm. A girl at an Ontario Catholic school... Um, decided she didn't want to sit in the religious classes and under Ontario law it was found that she did not have to because um, the school was at least partly funded by the government and was subject to essentially a Canadian Bill of Rights that enforced um, uh, freedom of religion. So uh, the court said to the Catholic school, you cannot force your students to sit in Catholic classes in your Catholic school and uh, you're going to have to advise all of your schools in your, uh, under your domain that they can't do that. And, and so she basically won a case relying on a Bill of Rights to religious freedom. Mm. Which, Scott, some people might say, well, why don't we get a Religious Freedom Act here in Australia? Because they'd know how to turn it around and use it against us. <laughs> this is the We've danger. seen this before. You, you don't want to give them any power at all. You know, because well. if, if, you, if you go on there, 
I'm sorry to cut you off, but this mm, is one in. of my little hobby horses. Mm. Is if you, if you go in and you have a freedom of religion act or freedom of religion uh, bill of rights passed or something like that, mm. they will turn everything into a freedom of religion cause. Yes. And you will find everyone will be before the courts having to argue everything about whether or not freedom of religion has been impinged. Correct. Yes, so that is why I do not like it. Mm. Which is <laughs> it'll why... Be, it'll be yours, yours and Tony's um, nightmare scenario where you said it'll be a lawyer's picnic. Correct, yep. Mm. So that is the thing when you have a Bill of Rights. Even though you may occasionally get a decision that you think is good for you, you're mm-hmm. also <laughs> at, at, at severe risk, risk of getting decisions that you mightn't like at all. So <laughs> Don't uh, want to hand the power over to them, <laughs> no. yeah. But interesting, Scott, because um, in Canada they have um, uh, very successful voluntary euthanasia laws and that came about through the Bill of Rights that they had over there. So it's scoring a few points um, in favour of some progressive law changes in Canada. So It might be scoring some points, but I just yeah. think that the overall downside is not worth the risk. I agree with you. I agree with you. But... Yeah. Um, Yes, I agree with you, but it is yeah. tempting, isn't it? Yeah. It is tempting, yes. <laughs> um, we, of course, in Australia have no Bill of Rights, and despite that, when you would line us up against any other country in the world, I think you could say that we perform pretty well, Scott. Um, oh, we do perform pretty well. I mean, like, we, you know, there was that... Uh, I forget what it was called. It was, it was on a podcast I was listening to yesterday. They were talking about the uh, Democracy Index that's uh, published annually. Mm-hmm. And every year we have come up on there as having a good, stable democracy. Mm-hmm. So it is something that I think we should be proud of. Mm. And even against countries that have a Bill of Rights. You know, exactly, that, um, yes. Uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, in Australia we don't have a Bill of Rights. We tend to actually have exemptions in place in legislation that might affect religious freedom. So where we would have things in relation to... Um, workplace laws and uh, not discriminating against people because of their um, uh, of their religion mm. deciding to employ people we actually have exemptions allowing religious schools to knock people back because they're not of the right religion or they're unmarried mothers or things like that so so we tend to have special exemptions in different um, pieces of legislation that uh, give freedom of religion to some extent. So that's mm. how we've done it. Uh, but, Scott, ideally, going back to an amendment to the Constitution, uh, bringing in line with the First Amendment of the US, that would be great. It would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm. They do lots of crazy things in America. You know, I mean, my news feed is full of just crazy pastors and clergymen doing all sorts of ridiculous stuff. But we here in Australia, Scott, have actually exported a few nutters to the United States. So, <laughs> Ken Ham's one of them. Ken, Ken Ham is one, dear <laughs> yep. listener. He's the guy who has built that enormous so-called replica of Noah's Ark and uh, used a lot of government money for it and upset a lot of people. And he's Australian. Yeah. And now there's another one over there, a Christian geologist turned creationist, um, Andrew Snelling, who's got a doctorate in the field of um, geology from the University of Sydney. And 
He's been over at the Grand Canyon seeking special permission to remove rocks from the Grand Canyon for his particular study and the uh, authorities there said, no, we're not going to let you take these rocks. Scott, you, you know why he wants the rocks? Um, I was trying to find the link between him and his religion, but um, it's, it, it was listed in there, but I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah it's not um, obvious in the article, but if he's like these other people I've heard of, uh, the um, creationists, uh, well, people who believe in Noah's Ark, mm. sorry, they feel that the Grand Canyon is proof of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood because they claim that the formation of the Grand Canyon could only have happened through an enormous amount of water in a very short space of time, and that it's proof of the Great Flood and Noah's Ark, and that's why he would have wanted his rocks as part of that study. <laughs> Smoking wacky tobacco, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Apparently, uh, when the um, National Park... Authorities in charge of the Grand Canyon received his submission. They sent it off to some expert geologists who offered that um, the proposal by um, this fellow was uh, not well written or up to date or well referenced, and uh, it sounded pretty lame. So, well, I mean, if the guy was he wanted to remove rocks from a national park, and mm. You can't remove anything from a national park, even mm. rocks or anything like that. It, it's. I'm okay, I'm okay with a legitimate scientist wanting to take a few to study something, perhaps. But yeah, but I mean, he, he was probably he's probably you're probably right. He was probably trying to prove the existence of of Noah's flood. Yes, no doubt. And, that's for sure. You know, but <laughs> the maddening thing is, you've got plenty of instances where you know that it wasn't true. You know. Hmm. Mm. So that's that one. So apologies to the United States for exporting that fellow and Ken Ham to you. <laughs> you. You do have enough homegrown nutters, and we've got a few of them in this podcast, episode 101, and um, on the top of the list is Tiffany Johnson. Oh, she's from, God, uh, yes. She's from North Carolina, and she was snorkelling in the Bahamas when she felt something bump her from behind. Uh, she turned and found herself face-to-face with a shark, and the shark had her arm in its mouth. Uh, Quoting her here, I remember just pulling my arm out and just looking at it and seeing that it was just this mangled stump, and I just threw off my snorkel mask and screamed, Help me! Help me, Jesus! (laughs) Goes on. She lost it. She, this poor Tiffany, it's got photos of her. It's a pretty ugly incident. She lost a limb from her hand yeah, to exactly. her elbow. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's and not pretty. No, yeah. it's not pretty. But um, poor Tiffany, um, she says, there's no doubt who she thanks for her escape. It's just God. There's no other explanation. I just had this supernatural God-given strength that just rose up within me. I prayed for my kids. I prayed for the doctors that would be touching my arm. I even prayed that God would use this for his glory. And still she goes on, if you really listen to this story, you'll understand that there is no other explanation but God, she added. Well, I can think of a couple of explanations. You know, um, (laughs) as horrible as it is for us to admit, gentle listeners, we are not the uh, apex of the food chain in the ocean. Mm. The shark is a, well, some of them are man-eaters, and this was clearly a man-eater that took her arm for lunch. Mm. 
and it's not not pleasant, but it's true. Mm. And that was it. You know, that was, you know, she points out that she called for Jesus's help. Well, it was her husband James that jumped into the water to help her out. <laughs> I think that was his name. Yeah, James. You know, so. I don't see that Jesus was there helping her out of the water, you know. This happens a lot when people get into trouble or disaster strikes and then they're saved, perhaps with a mangled arm or perhaps not, but then Jesus is is um, given credit for the saving. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Jesus got you into this mischief in the first place. Exactly. That is what's really... Uh, anyway, it's... It's it's like that word you looked at, oh, yeah, God, probably 50 or 60 episodes ago where you said um, it's this... Um, oh, the motivation. Yeah, that one. But there's also no? another one. Um, well, you know, you've got this overinflated sense of yourself that you think that God would be watching everything that you're doing and that sort of stuff. And that he gets personally involved in what you're involved with. Mm, sort of narcissistic yeah, I, sort of... Yeah, I think it is narcissistic, yeah. yeah. Mm, mm. Mm. True. So very yeah. forgiving, Tiffany. Um, you could get away with anything and uh, she'll, you know, she'll forgive... Well, she's not, she doesn't blame God in the first place. It's, it's crazy, but it's a common phenomenon. Yeah, it is. Scott, I um, have an article here by Majid Nawaz and this one is interesting because uh, he reports... Uh, this Sunday, up to a 1,000 sympathisers of a terror organisation will march through London with impunity. Protesters at this Al-Quds Day rally will raise the flag of the anti-Semitic sectarian Shia jihadist group Hezbollah while the London Metropolitan Police protects them. So Hezbollah is going to be raising its flag walking through London with police protection. Majid Nawaz thinks that's ridiculous. What do you think, Scott? Um, Hezbollah is a funny one because it is, you know, it, it's it's well and good for us to say that, you know, we've got to have um, democracy in the Middle East. When they've had democracy in the Middle East, they've elected a Hezbollah administration in the West Bank or Gaza Strip or wherever it is, and the Israelis and Americans have refused to deal with them. You know, you can't um, you can't just reject a government that's elected by people. Mm-hmm. You've got to uh, you've got to work with the government that's thrown up by the people. In that sense, I think that Hezbollah is probably a political organisation that has an armed military wing attached to it. Mm-hmm. And that is where the difficulty lies. You've got a situation where you've got um, you got a people that are ostensibly a political organisation, but then you've got an armed military wing with it. And that is where the difficulty lies in determining exactly what they are. So I am somewhat sympathetic to Majid Nawaz, but I also think that um, Hezbollah probably is a special case. However, when you're flying the flag of them and that sort of stuff, I think it's rather rude to do it in a city that's just recovered from two terrorist attacks, you know. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I think, but I'm not really convinced either way. What, what if they were a different... What if it was an ISIS group 
that was oh, an ISIS that, group. That no, was going to walk you, down you, you and was flying the ISIS flags. God, well, you, you, you couldn't have them on the street anyway, could you? You know, because they are a um, they are clearly a terrorist group first and a political organisation second. Mm. You know, and um, so you'd want to keep them off your street if you can. Um, See, Hezbollah. I'm so sure. Sorry, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Okay, let's see. Radio, come on. <laughs> well, uh, a flag is flowing. So you're walking down the street and you're saying, "Well, I'm in support of ISIS." Let's 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 make it purely ISIS and not Hezbollah, just to make it clear, so we don't have any of the distractions of potential political organisation or not. Just downright bad guys. Yeah. Okay. Right. Downright bad so, guys. Yep. Yep. Um, if you're Flying the flag, you are essentially saying, I support this group. I'm in favour of the general principles associated with this group. Okay. Is, is essentially what you're doing, aren't you? Yeah, you are. But Which is, you know, offensive and nasty, but probably fall short of inciting violence, perhaps. <sighs> I mean, it if you, if for example, does, a group of protesters it, are walking down the street um, uh, for animal, um, you know, to stop uh, cruelty to animals, and one of the members of the group says, "Hey, everybody, let's grab some bricks and throw them through those windows of those of that pet shop over there." See, that's a a speech that is inciting violence and mm. should be banned. Yeah, so, I agree with that. Yeah, even though they're trying to protect bunny rabbits, because mm. they're inciting violence. If you're walking down the street and you're saying, "I support uh, ISIS," I think they're a great organisation. Essentially, I think everyone else should. You're really espousing an idea which is objectionable, but you're not necessarily inciting violence. So that's that's part A of my argument. Part B is. If I was the police commissioner in London, I would love it if ISIS um, fanatics had a march down the main street of London because I'd be out with my cameras and everything. I'd be recording who they are and be following them home. And I'd know... I, you know I exactly be, who they are, yeah I, yeah. I wouldn't be thinking they're going to actually recruit anybody or have any success in their plans. And all it would do is put to... Light who these people are. I go, oh, I didn't know that um, Ahmed from Manchester was part of their group, but I do now. Um, and you know, it'd give you what imagine the leads you'd get from that sort of thing. So, the, the practical um, benefits for them, I mean, I don't think they would, would recruit a single person, all they would do is expose themselves to the authorities. Yeah, that's true, there's no doubt about that. Um... And, yeah, and one of the things true. we talk yeah. about with freedom of speech is that, you know, when you deny freedom of speech, you also deny the ability to hear the nasty comments so that you can then um, identify such people. So, yeah. so, um, so yes, yeah, Scott, I'm not, uh, you know, dear listener, if you've got a contrary view, let me know. I'd be... Uh, <laughs> Interested. I've got a f- terrible feeling right-wing Tony's going to be sending the emails throughout the week. But, <laughs> but I kind of am leaning towards let them have their 
run their flag because also, you know, when you're flying a flag and you're saying, well, I, I agree with this organisation, I mean, if we had um, a group of neo-Nazis wanting to walk down the street with a swastika, I'd probably say, go ahead and let them. Just, just make sure you take down their names and addresses and find out who they are. What would you think about a neo-Nazi, Scott, group? Well, I mean, I don't like them either, but, um, yeah, I suppose I've been turned around on that, haven't I? Um, you see, you could, the same argument could apply to... Yeah, exactly, just, yeah. Just a, a Muslim group, an, mm. an Islamic group. You could say, well, that is a very anti-Semitic group. If they believe everything in their group's literature, i.e. the Quran, then their attitudes towards Jews are abominable. Mm. So... It's a very dangerous thing to start saying to people you can't express an opinion um, or an idea. Uh, yeah, that's true. When, when it verges onto inciting violence or causing directly violence or injury, then you've got another issue. So it's interesting, Scott, did you hear about that girl who was t- texting her her suicidal boyfriend and... He was in a car, he had it all hooked up to, uh, with monoxide poisoning and did you hear about this one? No, I didn't hear about this at all, yeah. Mm. She, he, um, he had been talking for a while about committing suicide and he was in his car with monoxide you know, hooked up and he was poisoning himself and he, um, he texted her and told her what he was doing and, and then he got out of the car and... She told him to get back in oh, and finish the joking. job. And uh, was convicted of manslaughter in the United States. It's a terrible, terrible situation. But using it as an example of where speech actually causes injury, that's the sort of thing. So, Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah um, it's anyway. not pleasant, but it is... Um yeah, I, I mm. think that's right. There, there is a difference there. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, that is a case where freedom of speech has to be removed. Mm. So, Scott, have I, have I changed your mind now on this, on this thing with uh, Hezbollah? Would you now be quite calm in saying, yep, let them go for it? I'd say let them go for it. And I think that uh, the intelligence value to the local police would be worth more than uh, what you'd get out of it, what, what the protesters would get out of it. So, mm. yeah, yep. I'd say let them go for it. Mm. Um, Scott, in episode 100, I, I think I botched pretty badly the Sunni-Shia divide. So I quickly wanted to go over that because it was relevant in terms of Hezbollah. So Hezbollah, they're a Shia Islamist militant group and That's a political why they're party by Iran. Yep. based in Lebanon. Hmm. And they were founded in the early 1980s as part of an Iranian effort to gather together all of the militant Lebanese Shia groups under one roof. Uh, that's how they came about. And they were not very happy with the Israeli occupation of Lebanon, hence they're very anti-Jewish. And they are a Shia sect and... We've got Sunni and Shia, and in relation to the Sunni side, we had Muhammad, who was married eventually to a girl who he took as like a nine-year-old, Aisha. Aisha's 
father is Abu Bakr, and he was one of the successors to Muhammad, and um, his group basically believes that leadership of the Islamic Empire should occur through consensus, whereas on the Shia side, Muhammad, it turns out, Scott, did have some children. So with his first wife... He did have some children, did he? Okay. Yes. And... um, there was a uh, there was various children, um, one of whom survived long enough, Fatima, to have um, children. So mm-hmm. Muhammad did have some grandchildren, and uh, Fatima's husband Ali ibn Abi Talib, uh, the Shia people believe that he was um, basically anointed by Muhammad to um, to lead the group on. Mm-hmm. So the Shias are uh, believing that the leadership of the Islamic world uh, has to come from the descendants of Muhammad. So that's Sunni and Shia better explained than I did last week. My apologies for that, dear listener. Um, little article there that's referred to just about the Confederate flag flying in the US mm. and... Again, Scott, I sort of just feel flying flags is just voicing opinion. I don't think it's inciting violence. Um, you can fly whatever no, flag you want to as far as I'm concerned. It's yeah, you, you can, but, I mean, it. I could understand where the writer was coming from in this. And, mm. you know, he was saying that... Um he was saying that the symbols of Confederate soldiers and that sort of stuff that are adorn a lot of the South, he was making the point that they are... Symbols of rape and that type of thing, and mm. enslavement, and all those sorts of really nasty side of human culture. And it is not, you know, it isn't. It's understandable where he's coming from, especially when I found out the age of this um, um, statue in Cochrane went up in nineteen hundred and. Ten, I think it was, mm-hmm. and this was at the same time that you know you had, um, uh, well, in nineteen hundred nine, a black preacher named was burned to death. A uh, black man was quickly strung up, um, riddled with bullets. That was in nineteen fourteen, nineteen fifteen, and then nineteen nineteen, a black man was dragged into Cochrane City Jail and later, later found hanging from a tree. So you've got some, it was fairly racially charged time, and that's when they decided to erect this statue, which I did find um, somewhat appalling. You would think that by 1910 that the um, the wounds of the Civil War would be healed almost, and that you wouldn't need to commemorate it anymore. Anyway, oh, yeah. Some people are very good at holding a grudge for a long time. Well, th- they are, absolutely. And that is, that is one of the problems is that, you know, you, you've got these people that do hold the grudge and they do hold it for a very long time. So it is, um, yeah, it is somewhat disturbing that you've still got these. Mm. You know, I can understand where the author was coming from when he's, in his criticism of it. I don't think they are two sides of the same coin, though. I do think that they are different flags. <laughs> I think yeah, yeah. the argument 
being put forward was, well, people are, you know, again, talking about banning ISIS flags. Meanwhile, we've got Confederate monuments and Confederate flags flying around and the uh, whole Confederate notion was a pretty despicable one that was certainly based on slavery. So mm. if you're going to be banning ISIS flags, you know, what about these Confederate flags was and Confederate monuments is kind of where it was heading. So... You know, that is an argument. Once you start banning speech, then where do you stop? So, well, that's exactly it. You know, that, that is the mm. problem. You, you, you've, you've got to be careful how far you go with banning stuff. I mean, mm. there's, there's, there's no... Um, there were no Negro soldiers in the Confederate ranks, so you can't even argue that they were... Um, that they were um, represented in the ranks or anything like that. It is, it is pretty, it is pretty off- offensive. Yeah. Mm. Scott, uh, we did get a voicemail again this week. Oh, did we? This, it, you, you would not believe, dear listener, how it warms the cockles of my heart when <laughs> an email comes through saying there's a voicemail. So <laughs> this one is from Jimmy. We'll play this one. G'day, guys. It's Jimmy here from Melbourne, just contacting you to congratulate you on 100 episodes. Good work. Uh, been meaning to send you a message. I just keep forgetting. I was just reminded today as I was typing a message to a friend on Facebook Messenger and uh, it auto-corrected Catholic faith to Catholic filth. (laughs) And that reminded me that, yeah, perhaps I should contact you guys and (laughs) remind you to keep fighting the good fight and you're doing a great job and keep it up. Uh, I've sent you a few emails, so you probably know my uh, typing isn't the best at times, but I was quite happy to leave that typo in. All right, cheers, guys. Keep it up. Catholic faith. Filth, yes. Catholic filth. <laughs> Good on you, Jimmy. Yeah, well done, Jimmy. Thank you. Mm. Uh, in other news, dear listener, Scott and I are experimenting uh, with this podcast. We've, we normally record it over Skype, but um, we're doing this over Google Hangouts and, and um, YouTube Live, and the idea will be that... You, dear listener, we normally record on a Wednesday night at about 7.30 and uh, keep an eye on Facebook because you might see a link come through and you could watch us and listen as we record live and if you do that, there's a, um, a chat room message thing that you could leave messages on and, and either abuse us or ask questions or whatever as we're doing <laughs> it. So, you know what? I don't expect many of you to take up the option, but it's possible. We'll do it as an, a bit of an experiment simply because maybe sort of if there's an election on, we could do a post-election sort of live um, one or uh, some other big events where we might decide it could be good. So... Keep an eye on Facebook and it would be possible to to watch us live on YouTube as we record the podcast. Or, of course, you can just download it and listen to it the way you normally would. So, Either way, fun. we don't mind. Hmm. So uh, thank you to our patrons, Sean, Alex, Jason, Grant, John, Craig, Janelle, Al and Ken. Good on you, fellas, well, ladies and gentlemen, for helping thank out. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yes. Mm. Scott, uh, all over the world again, this time um, an article titled, I Can't Follow Jesus and Be a Politician. And we had the leader of Britain's Liberal Democrats uh, resigning because he wants to remain faithful to Christ and felt he couldn't do that and be a politician. 
basically because people want progressive laws and as a Christian he kind of recognised it was necessary. Well, as a liberal he recognises it's necessary. As a Christian he could see the conflict and he kind of just, I think, reading the article, got tired of trying to reconciling the two. Was that your feeling, Scott? Yeah, it was. I mean... um the Guardian article, I think, explores it a little more deeply than what that one did. That was basically his resignation letter than mm-hmm. that, and that first one. The Guardian article goes into... This is the one by Peter Ormerod? Yeah, Peter Ormerod yeah. Thinks, that, um, thinks that it's all about same-sex marriage. And I'm not sure that it is. Um... You know, one of the final lines of the article, there is something tragic in all this. Farron appears to think he cannot live as a committed Christian without seeing gay sex as symbol, as sinful. Tim, you can. Please don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I've, I found that a little bit ridiculous. I mean, he had abstained from voting for gay marriage when it hit the uh, British Parliament. He did abstain from it. Um, that probably gives you an idea of what he was thinking about it personally. But I don't think uh, something like that would be enough to push him over the edge. Um, who knows? He, he may well just... He, he may well be one of those rare and beautiful things in public life, a, a committed individual that um, really believes in what he says. So, mm. you know, it, it could be that, or it could be... Maybe Peter Omerod is right. Maybe it is a uh, a thing about um, he just doesn't like gay sex. It, it looked to me that he just couldn't reconcile the two and he's just looking for an easier job where he doesn't face that conflict all the time. That's, that's how I read it. And Peter Omerod basically says um, that he's wrong. Of course he could... Um, uh, stay in Parliament, and here's the argument that he's running here, Scott. This guy who said, "No, no, no, it's possible to be Christian and be a politician, and uh, that that Christianity is progressive," is what he's saying. Um, um, he says, um, "It's hard to see the teachings and message of Jesus in any way that that is contrary to the aims of progressive politics." Um, if Jesus is at odds with progressive aims, it is because he is more radical and revolutionary, not more conservative. He goes on, Yes, there is homophobia in the Bible. There's misogyny too. There are also parts that celebrate violence. But to say that the Bible actively teaches these things is misleading. The Bible is an anthology of books that reflects the preoccupation of its many writers and the different ways in which they understood the idea of God. Unless Farron goes so far as to believe that it is all written by God, then all bar the teachings of Jesus is up for debate. That's the nuts of what he's saying is you can forget the Old Testament yeah, the important part is Jesus, and this is a key feature of modern evangelical Christianity. Scott is the focus on Jesus and your personal relationship with Jesus. When I was a young Catholic boy, <laughs> yeah, we didn't speak. You know, there wasn't so much of a focus on Jesus. It was God, yeah, like the Father, as opposed to Jesus, the Son, and. 
this is part of the clever tactics of the Christian churches, I think, is, oh, geez, the Old Testament, we've got to steer clear of that. Let's just concentrate on Jesus because he's a relatively good story in the scheme of things and and we'll ignore the God of the Old Testament. And um, it's a sneaky debate, you know. If you said to them, great, let's just rip up the first, you know, the first book and uh, they'd say, oh, you can't do that. There's some, still some good stuff in there. Yeah. It's infuriating. It is infuriating, isn't it? Yeah. Ah, yes. They're very Jesus-focused, and um, uh, that was his answer. Hmm. Christine, uh, Christina Keneally. <laughs> One has to wonder why she's still a Mick. You know, <laughs> you'd, think she, you'd think someone that had been so anti the Catholic Church the way she has been, you'd think she would have, you know, given up her membership of the faithful, you know? And anyway... You, you, you would, yeah. yeah. She's come out with an article, um, again, critical of the church. Um, I think it was more critical of Tony Abbott than it was of the church. Uh, well, well, actually, maybe more. She's actually sort of taken on board some of Abbott's ideas. Like he wants to know, he says we've got to name the threats that we face. So... Um, so she agrees. She's happy to use terms like radical Islam and extremist Islamic Islamic terrorists. So she's kind of saying, oh, I like the idea of naming the enemy, as Abbott has suggested. Um, and she's saying, well, I'm not happy with this term institutional sex abuse. It's too broad. And she said, the Royal Commission, let's face it, it's had a lot to do with the Catholics and institutional sex abuse is just too bland. She would prefer a description such as um, Catholic ex- extremism is what she's coming up with. Yeah. I found that... Um, I mean, I understand where she's coming from. I do, but to label the entire Catholic Church responsible for the child sexual abuse, I think that's a little bit uh, hard to swallow. You know? Well, that's is, why uh, she wants to come up with this label of Catholic extremism, because she wants to say, oh, you know, it's not the fault of the Church generally, it's Catholic extremists who have done this, in the same way that Islamic extremists are responsible for problems in Islam. It's been Catholic extremists who are responsible for the institutional child abuse. That's that's where she's getting at. Mm. It's a clever line. It is a clever line, yeah, it is. It's um it but like like Islam, the Islam argument refuses to acknowledge that the very fundamental basic doctrines are what leads to the problems. So in the case of Islam, we've got basic doctrine in the Quran, which is very anti-Semitic and misogynist and terrible, and we've mm. just got the so-called extremists who follow that literally, according to its ordinary meaning. And, you know, oh, well, don't blame everyday Muslims, blame the extremists, but they've arisen out of moderate Islam. Mm. Without moderate Islam, you don't get the extremists. Same with thing with the Catholics. I mean, if... 
if you create a situation of, uh, you know, enforced celibacy and uh, a patriarchal uh, institution uh, where women don't have involvement in powerful positions and you have these sort of everyday moderate doctrines, that is what creates the so-called Catholic extremist. So they, the extremists come out of the moderate pond. You, you need that there. And it's a cop-out to say, oh, uh, you know, they're just extremists who have taken this way beyond anything that was possibly contemplated by, you know, the moderate practice. And I think it's a sneaky argument that I don't like. I think it ignore, it's trying to absolve the moderate... Um, the moderate sections of culpability that they deserve. Well, that's true, yeah. That is, that is true. Um, yeah, I have to think about that, but, yeah, I think you... Yeah, it is true, but I do have to think about it, yeah. I think she's been very loose with her terminology as well. She says here, um, we should call such fluid thinking out, we must name it, it's Catholic, it's Catholic extremism. It's killing and terrorising Australians. And she used that word um, sort of terrorising. Yes, she called it uh, Catholic terrorism. And that is not what terrorism is, Scott. Terrorism Mm. is when you do things because you are sending a public message to other people to either do or not do things, otherwise they will suffer the same fate. Exactly, yeah. that wasn't what the... Kitty fiddlers in the Catholic Church were doing when they're um, mucking around with altar boys and everybody else. They were doing it in secret. So terrorism is a public act designed to influence um, public and political actions through fear that oh, this might happen to me or somebody I know if I don't do what the terrorist wants. So yeah, I mean, I think she's just using the word terrorism to try and get people to listen to her argument. Yeah, um, to, to sell an article. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so Christina Keneally kind of hitting the Catholics, but I think trying to at the same time provide some excuses in that particular one. And you're not going to get away with it, Christina, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, she's been on the, out in the past saying, where's all the people criticising the Catholics, you know? Well, we're here. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And we're criticising you too, Christina, for trying to, to um, obfuscate what's really happening. Yeah. Um, we haven't had much talk in Australia about um, banning the Muslim face veils in recent times, Scott. It's been all quiet on that front. It has been quiet on that front. Um, the last time there was anything discussed about it, I think when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, he said something, I said, oh, I do find it a confronting document, a confronting um, article of clothing to wear. Mm. Um well, you know, it might be confronting, but it's still, yeah. Anyway, oh, I'm happy to ban the niqab and the burqa from public spaces. I think. Well, have, I think you've got a. I think you've got you a reasonable have. argument. I think you've got a reasonable argument for that because you've got to rely on the on people's facial expressions. You've got to see what their face is actually saying to you when they're talking mm. to you. And by having the niqab, which is the. Um, which is the, the eyes to be seen. Seen, exactly. That is, that is pretty bad at covering up people's expressions. Mm. And the burqa is even worse. But mm. the burqa is something that's only related to Afghanistan and that type of thing. So I can't see that that being a problem here in Australia. 
But you know what gives me the shit, Scott? When people say, oh, we can't tell people what they can and cannot wear. Well, try walking down the Queen Street Mall in the nude and see how far you get. Exactly. You wouldn't get very far at all. We tell people yeah. all the time what they can and cannot wear. Exactly. So don't give me that argument. Yeah. Anyway, the reason this topic's up for discussion, Scott, is because, well, you know, Scandinavia is known for being just a bunch of ratbags over there. They're terrible, aren't they? They're so <laughs> racist and so, oh, what's well, the word? Right-wing joining, extremist. They're joining other right-wing extremist countries like France, the Netherlands, Belgium, Bulgaria, and the German state of Bavaria. Mm. You know, so. <laughs> yes, they're joining them in imposing restrictions on the wearing of full-face veils in public places. So Norway is joining and is going to ban them in kindergartens, schools, and universities. So uh, when Nordic countries are doing something like that, it just adds more weight to the argument that, hey, it can't be that much of a ridiculous idea. No, it can't be. It can't just be put down as a ridiculous idea. It's got to be... um, It's got to be... It's got to be brought out in the open, and I think that... um, one of the things about the whole wearing of the veil and the niqab and that sort of stuff is it's um, it's argued that it's been a misinterpretation of the original scriptures. Mm-hmm. The original scriptures are called for you to dress modestly. It didn't call for you to wear a thing that covered your entire face. You mm. know, it really is absolutely insane that you've got people that think that you have to you have to cover yourself completely in order to get away with it. I find that really disturbing that you've got people that think that there's the lengths they have to go to. Mm. So and, I'm, you know, I'm, as we fa- read- I'm in favour of banning it too in, in public places, yeah. Mm. As we read in an article once, dear listener, ooh, 30 or 40 episodes ago, there was a, a UK journalist in Tehran who had to wear the niqab or as she was walking the streets and she said that the level of uh, leering and wolf whistling and uh, terrible yes, sexist I remember this, yeah. from men yeah. on the street was horrendous. Mm. So despite being covered in a black tent where nobody could see anything of her, the, it was a disgusting level of sexual innuendo and mm. comments made towards her. So it didn't help anyway in a country yeah. like that. Mm. Scott, no shortage of bad ideas uh, in in university uh, in universities in America. They're they're out of control over there. They are, aren't they? Mm. We've got here a uh, a group of California college students belonging to the Five School Claremont Consortium, who say that objective truth is a myth espoused by white supremacists. <laughs> I can hear the 12th man rolling, you know, perhaps bashing his head against the wall as we speak. Uh, It is absolutely bloody ridiculous that this is what they said. mm, The idea that there is a single truth, the truth, is a construct of Euro-West that is deeply rooted in the Enlightenment, which was a movement which was prescribed by black, uh, which described black and brown people as subhuman and impervious to pain. Mm. That's what they wrote in the letter. Yeah, signed by 22 co-signatories. They were at the time protesting somebody who was going to appear at a university or something like that. Uh, yeah, this was they, uh, Mrs. McDonald. What was her name? Heather McDonald. Yeah. Mm, they went on to say, 
This construction is a myth in white supremacy, imperialism, colonisation, capitalism and the United States of America are all of its progeny. The idea that the truth is an, is an entity for which we must search in matters that endanger our abilities to exist in open spaces is an attempt to silence oppressed peoples. Boy, oh boy. You'd, you'd, if you're hiring a US college graduate, you'd be checking their Facebook page to see if they've got any hints of believing that sort of nonsense, Scott, wouldn't you? Well, you would. And, you know, this is the thing that you'd... you'd what I find incredibly annoying about this is that the great civil rights movements and all that sort of stuff of the past would never have come to pass had we actually followed this nonsense, had we kept everyone bunkered down in their place and that type of thing. Mm. I, I think that's really offensive that you've... They've got, got no people. idea, have they? Scott, they've, no, they've they got don't. no idea of what they're saying. They're completely delusional about the meaning of words and ideas. And yeah, they are. I mean, like, this yeah. is, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was one that was, you know, um, just recently espousing Marx. Right. Well, that sounds good in theory, but, you know, yeah. it's, it's when you actually bring this whole thing up and, and the kids that are voting today weren't even born when the, um, when the Berlin Wall came down. You know, mm. that is the type of thing that uh, I think that... Um, people do have to realise is that you've got um, when left-wing ideas get out of control they become fascist very, very mm. quickly. And that is one of the things that you you do have to watch yourself on. And that nonsense there, it's bordering on, it's bordering on communist fascism. It's really absolutely crazy. Mm. Mm. You know, supposedly I mean, they've got into a university supposedly well-educated people, but they, their thinking is just totally warped. They're, they have totally lost the plot when it comes to thinking... It is really warped, isn't it? ...how the yeah, world works and, and It's bizarre. Yeah. Speaking of more warping that's going on in the world, uh, we have in the past mentioned cultural appropriation and we have in the past mentioned one of the great modern thinkers, Kenan Malik, and yep. he's written a piece on cultural appropriation... And he has said that it's uh, just as well that he's a writer and not an editor, because if he was an editor, he would probably be sacked because he is against cultural appropriation. And he gives the example of three editors who is he last against, month... Is he against cultural appropriation? Uh, he's against the idea of oh, cultural, cultural appropriation. appropriation. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Yep. He thinks you should be able to... Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's... It, Yes, we'll get onto it. But he's yeah. he's quite in favour of people taking bits and pieces of other cultures and using them as they see fit without seeking permission or whatever. Mm. Um, he gives the example of a guy called Hal Nydviecki, editor of Write, the magazine of the Canadian Writers' Union. Uh, and this guy, Hal, penned an editorial defending the right of white authors to create characters from minority or Indigenous backgrounds. But within a few days, the social media backlash forced this guy to resign. So he's written an editorial saying, look, white people should be able to create characters about black people, about, you know, black characters in their writings. Social media forces him to resign. Another editor, Jonathan Kay, from a different magazine, tweets his support for Hal 
and he has to be um, uh, he's forced to step down. And meanwhile, a broadcaster, um, CBC, um, moved a guy, Steve Latterate, managing editor of its flagship news program, The National, um, moved him to a different post because he also tweeted about this controversy. So three people, um, two lost their jobs and one moved sideways because they've said, well, of course, white authors should be able to create characters from minority or indigenous backgrounds. Unbelievable, Scott. It's really, it's really, really annoying that this has come out like this because... It's scary. It, what was that name of that author that was in the Brisbane Writers' Festival? Uh, Lionel Shriver. Yeah. Now, you know, she had a perfectly reasonable argument that she was putting up and she got howled down by people that would be in very much in favour of free speech and all that sort of stuff. Mm. You know, it's... Abde- uh, our friend, Abdul Majid, was the keen one. Yeah. I haven't heard much from her lately. She's been no, a bit quiet. Hasn't. She has been a bit quiet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike Margaret Court, uh, Yasmin knows when to just duck down low and stay out for a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, Ken and Malik goes on to give um, some other examples in the art world. Um, controversy erupted uh, in New York when a museum um, picked up a particular painting uh, to exhibit. Unfortunately, the painting was done by a white person and it was of a uh, of an African-American murdered by white men in Mississippi in 1955. So... Uh, it's a, it's from a famous photograph where this fourteen year old African American was was killed by I think Ku Klux Klan sort of characters. Mm. Painting done of that, a white person is now not allowed to paint that sort of scene. Um, it's it's been you know labelled cultural appropriation and petitions signed to have the work destroyed and. Um, Another white guy dared to um, prepare an artwork called Scaffold, which was honouring 38 Native Americans who were executed in Minneapolis in 1862. And after protests from Indigenous activists, um, he had to dismantle the work and its wood was made available to be burned in a Dakota Sioux ceremony. So he couldn't erect a sculptural artwork honouring the Native Americans who were killed because he's not Native American. Yeah. And the world is going bananas. It is going mad, isn't it? It's absolutely insane that you've got a bloke that wants to do the right thing. Now, I, I don't know the story of these 38 Native Americans who were executed in 1862. It was probably something really minor that they did, but they went to the gallows. Hmm. And you've got a guy, Sam Durrant, who wanted to build something to honour their execution. And he couldn't do it because he wasn't black. Or he wasn't, he wasn't Native American. Okay, he wasn't Native American, I think, yeah. I think, yes. Which is so, really anyway. ridiculous. You, you, you see, what are you then going to have if, if you've got a, um, a painting of one of the great American battles with Native Americans? Are you going to have 
the Indians drawn by Native Americans and the white fellas draw, drawn by white people or something like good, that. It, good good it's point, c- Scott. What do you do in an artwork that has a mixture of of minority groups and majority groups? Do, exactly. do you need two, two artists or multiple artists to complete the various pieces of the work? I just think that we've got to get back to a situation that art is for art's sake and that you've just got to get over it. You, you, mm. It's really frustrating that this is this is still an issue. Anyway, Ken and Malik uh, sets up those examples um, and he says, appropriation suggests theft. In the case of culture, however, what is called appropriation is not theft but messy interaction. Um, critics of cultural appropriation want to protect marginalised cultures ensure that such cultures speak for themselves, yet it is difficult to see how creating gated cultures helps promote social justice. He's Very good, good Ken. Right on the head, yeah. He's Absolutely. got a good turn of phrase. It's not theft because nothing's taken. It's all still there. This is an, a resource that... You know, it's not like you're pulling a bucket from a well and there's now one bucket less water for the native indigenous people to use. Like, this is the thing. I mean, you steal a burrito recipe, well, there's just more burritos. It's not like uh, you've taken a burrito from somebody who can't have it now. Exactly, yeah. Appropriation is such a poor word for this. Um, He repeats your comment, uh, the civil rights movement, that struggle was built not on cultural separation but on the demand for equal rights and universal values. Uh, He also makes the point, who does the policing of this um, cultural appropriation? The gatekeepers are usually self-appointed and they appropriate for themselves the authority to licence certain forms of cultural engagement and in doing so entrench their power. I mean, this is it. I mean... uh, Liberals will say, you know, oh, you must seek permission of the native population if you're going to do that. Well, who do you ask? There's no leadership of these people. Who's to say they've got the authority to licence a culture's stuff to mm, a exactly. white privileged man? Mm. Mm. Ah, so there we go. Um, white painters today are not allowed to portray black subjects. That's where cultural appropriation is heading. And it's heading entirely in the wrong direction. Hmm. Scott, democracy. Um, Article here, which is quite thought-provoking, which is saying that uh, democracies are committing suicide, and this guy's calling it democide. Um, Places like Turkey, Hungary, Poland, the Philippines, the citizens are actively making decisions that diminish their own democratic rights. And... He's mounting an argument, this academic, that people just don't know how the system works. They're voting, basically harming their own interests. And in a nutshell, people are too stupid to be given the vote and we need to set some sort of test before people can vote, so that when they're in the voting booth, they need to answer a, some sort of quiz in order to uh, confirm their qualification to vote. And at that point, they can then vote. I, I can't agree with him. No, I, 
But I, I, I share his angst, but I, d- I don't think he's got the right solution, but go on. No, I'm sympathetic to his suggestion that democracies are committing suicide. Hmm. But you're not going to save the patient by killing the patient. Hmm. And if you restrict people's access to the ballot box, that's what you're doing. You're killing the patient rather than saving the patient. And while I'm sympathetic to them, I don't think it's the right thing to do. It mm. is um, it is ridiculous that you would get to the point. You know, he said you'd have to answer questions about your own voting structures first. I don't think there's anyone that understands fully the way the Senate's elected. Mm. You know, except for the preference whisperer. But, you know, mm. it's... The, the idea of a quiz, it's just going to work... Um, in favour of some parties and not others, uh, it's well, going that's to it, you know. s- stop certain people from 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 voting. And yeah, I mean, if you, you know, if, if you wanted to do something along these lines, you'd have to make it a permanent caste system, I suppose, where you've got you know those of us that are educated and that sort of stuff. Well, you know, our vote's worth two votes, whereas someone who's not educated and that sort of stuff, his own his vote's only worth one vote. Mm. And then you've got you know ex- outstanding, exceptional people that are above everyone else. They get three votes per vote. You know, mm. but that in itself, that's really bloody frightening that you would do that. It's it, it, it's 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 really disturbing that these guys have got the mental capacity to put it together and, and do this. Mm. I, I understand where he's coming from, but I, you know, he, he writes in here, this is one of his examples. Ideally you'd put things such as what's the unemployment rate. I don't know what the current unemployment rate is. It's 5.5% or something like that, isn't it? I'd, I'd have a guess somewhere around there. Yeah. 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 Now, you know, you, you and I couldn't vote then because we don't know what the unemployment rate is. Yeah. Yeah. We... <laughs> yeah. He's also quite elitist in it, you know. He's sort of saying, well, people are voting against their own best interests, but it kind of ignores the fact that some people choose, um, make their vote based on one issue, for example. Like you might decide immigration is the issue and might decide that the biggest danger facing Australia is... Uh, Islamic uh, immigration, for example, and really other economic issues and whatever pale into insignificance except for that one issue. So you might well vote against your own interests on economic stuff, but you'll vote for the party that that has the correct answer as far as you're concerned on a single issue. So he's quite elitist in sort of saying, oh, these people have obviously voted against their own interests, but maybe for them they prioritise things different to him. So people have got to be allowed to um, make their own decisions. I think it just means we've got to, as much as possible, have people educated in what's going on as much as possible and we need not only to be taught in, in schools and universities about how the world works but... Our media, we cannot concentrate our media into the hands of a few where we're getting a very um, limited range of viewpoints. And, you know, if Channel 10 lands in the hands of Rupert Murdoch, then uh, it seems to be on the cards, then that's just another concentration of the media. And, you know, as part of that deal, if the ABC loses some of its funding, sorry, Tony, um, but I do think the ABC <laughs> deserves every cent it gets. 
Yeah, we need a variety of opinions, yeah. even if you disagree with them, just uh, so that the public can be opened up to all sorts of opinions. So that's the sort of things we need to do is have an educated population as much as possible rather than reducing things to a quiz before they're entitled to vote. But What do you I, think of a voluntary vote? Um, I haven't thought about that much, but I quite like the current system, actually. I like people being told, well, you're part of the society and like it or not, you're part of it, so you're going to have to make a decision. I think at, to some extent that would force people to think about things that they wouldn't otherwise. So I think that works along with my argument that people need to be educated. I think that... When people know they have to vote, to do you're compelling people to think about um, how they're going to vote, and Mm. that could come down to them voting just for one thing, which is okay. I don't have a problem. I don't know. I don't care if people are single issue, but I just think there would be some people who think do not think of politics at all for um, for years on end. But then when the election comes up and they they have to vote, we'll go. Oh, okay. I'll just. You know, I'll, I'll talk to somebody and see what they think or I'll yeah. bring Dad up and see what he thinks or they'll just pay some attention to the issues if only momentarily. So mm. I'm quite happy with um, mandatory voting myself. So. Yeah, okay. Mm. We're one of only five countries in the world that's got it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're doing all right compared to <laughs> the others, I reckon. Uh, he also puts up a proposal that um, maybe to help the democratic system, we could have uh, something adopted from ancient Greece where they have a random selection of... Um, Actually, yes, of, I liked of, that. ...in our parliament. And so do I. I, so, I think that that would be very good if the House of Review was taken hmm. from being an election to then being a random ballot of the um, electoral roll yes. every six months or something like that so that you've got this constantly changing house... Mm. That you've got this, um, and then the House of Representatives would be forced to deal with people. Yes. I mean, what turned, one of the great things, like when Ricky Mueller of the Motoring Enthusiast Party got up, he obviously had very little experience in politics, but he just applied himself genuinely to the issues and tried to approach things with a common sense, what's the right thing approach. And. Mm. I mean, people do that in juries every day of the week in our criminal justice system. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think a random selection of people would probably... It could work. You'd have one chamber which is elected and one which is random and... Well, you'd it, have one chamber, could that's be elected, supr- one chamber that's elected for a fixed parliamentary term of three years... Mm. And then you have the second chamber that's turned over every six or 12 months or something like that. Mm. So that it's not too onerous. If you're a member of the electoral roll, you could get called up. You give people a term's notice. So that if you've got six months in notice that you're going to be going down to Canberra for six months, you've got, uh, you've got opportunities to put your life in order and that sort of stuff and get ready to go. I'm or happy you could- for them to have three years, you know, pay them enough so that, you know, I mean, they don't have to take it if they're randomly selected and choose not to. But well, that's true, yeah. Because at the end of the day, people need to settle in, work out how things work, consider things um, with some time, you know, and if you've only got six months, well, it's all over in a flash. Well, that's true, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 
but uh, on but yeah, that, that was so. one of the, what was one of the arguments that was put forward that I thought to myself, yeah, this, this guy does actually know what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was sort of an interesting idea. Yeah, absolutely. Scott, uh, a couple more crazy American stuff, and then we'll finish off. Um, this, dear listener, can you believe seven percent of all America <laughs> of all American adults believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows? <laughs> According to National Representative Online Survey, survey so that is six... chocolate milk come from if it doesn't come from brown cows, Trevor? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sixteen point four million Americans. Um, there you go. One in five adults did not know that hamburgers are made from beef. So there's that. Uh, one other interesting article came across. This one from Colombia. Three gay men say they've gained legal recognition for the first polyamorous family in Colombia where same-sex marriages were legalised last year. So three gay men in a polyamorous, legally recognised same-sex marriage. Well, George Christensen won't be happy with that, will he? No, but um, you might recall... um, Right-wing Tony, um, he said he didn't care if you married a ferret. And uh, <laughs> we can expand that now. He probably doesn't care. He doesn't care if you marry two ferrets. Yeah. If, you want to have a, <laughs> if you want to have a polyamorous relationship with two ferrets. Two ferrets, that's your business, yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scott. Oh, that's it, I reckon. We'll, um, we'll call it a day. So, dear listener, um, keep an eye on the Facebook page and... Um, I reckon next week we might be live on YouTube and if you want to watch and provide comments, uh, that might be possible. So we'll see how we go. But in the meantime, we will say goodbye and we'll see you for episode 102 next week. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye, everyone. Cheers. Bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, 
contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.